After 50 years of writing about places others might think of as a challenge, Paul Theroux has come up with his own list of the 10 essentials of rewarding travel. Turns out a lot of them involve what you don't bring along. People do it in so many different ways. One is an ordeal, another is a love affair, another is autobiography. I mean, people travel for so many different reasons. Some aren't traveling at all to a place, they're sort of fleeing a place, trying to get away from home. Paul Theroux shares his thoughts about the art of memorable travel in the hour ahead, today on Travel with Rick Steves. And with all the emotions that are resurfacing with the 10-year anniversary of the September 11th attacks, we've invited the publishers of Poetry After 9-11 to share how poetry has helped their fellow New Yorkers cope. Because we'd all been witnesses to something really horrific and, and very difficult to understand, and it made no sense, and we were trying to make sense of it. Let's explore our world together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Paul Theroux knows how to make reading about travel almost as much fun as actually being there. The best-selling author's latest book is a collection of writings from authors who influenced Paul in his own travels, plus excerpts from his own observations over 50 years of exploring the world. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, Paul Theroux lays out his advice for how best to explore and experience our world. First, we're commemorating the 10th anniversary of the September 11 attacks on New York. Even without rebuilding the World Trade Center, a lot really has changed in 10 years. But the emotions that dreadful day unleashed remain. We've invited Dennis Loy Johnson and his wife, Valerie Marians, to share how their fellow New Yorkers crafted poetry as a way to cope in the weeks that followed those attacks. They've compiled a collection called Poetry After 9-11. It first appeared in 2002, and now it's been republished for the 10th anniversary. Dennis and Valerie, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Talk about the spontaneous appearance of poetry after 9-11. Well, um, it was a really remarkable thing. If you're uh, literarily minded like Valerie and I are, um, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, it just seemed that people kept writing poetry, people who didn't normally write poetry. I know and it's probably pretty well known that people were writing poetry, you know, in the ashes that covered everything downtown, but what they they might not know about is how you know, the letters to the editor's section of all the neighborhood newspapers were suddenly filled with these these poems that people were writing, very moving things, very martial things. Um, there was even a point where the fire chief of New York City issued a statement asking people, thanking people for all the great things they were sending to the firehouses in, in memory of those who had died. But he did ask people to slow up on the poetry. They'd so they been, were actually overwhelmed at the fire station walls with poetry, huh? Right. And yeah. and we thought it was a remarkable response in what is supposedly, you know, a non-literate age. So how how did that lead then to this book? Actually, what how it happened for us was Dennis had a blog called Moby Lives, and uh, he was blogging that day when the towers were struck. And friends started, we didn't know what was happening. The TV antennas went down, so we had no TV reception. And so people started emailing him. And a lot of our friends are poets, and they began sending poetry. And sort of word got out, and he was posting it online. And it became extremely popular place for people to go to express themselves, to send their own poems in, and also to see what other people were reading. And I think it was very reassuring in a lot of ways that there was a community here. People were talking. It was kind of an emotional and maybe psychological support in a way. And we just thought, you know what? This is a really important thing right now because we suddenly, New Yorkers, I believe, many of the New Yorkers I know, suddenly found themselves sort of whipped up into the frenzy of going off to war in retaliation for this deed. But in fact... A lot of New Yorkers were still in shock and just kind of trying to process it. And we felt like a lot of that was happening in poetry. People in New York were, as Valerie said, shocked, stunned, and still trying to process. And the immediate impulse was not, let's go attack Afghanistan or, or anyplace else. And I think most New Yorkers I knew were kind of taken aback by that, even though it, it may have seemed like a natural response to want vengeance. It just wasn't happening here yet. 
Well, that's fascinating. First, you got this phenomenon of just poetry appearing everywhere, blanketing the walls and the telephone posts and the fire stations of the city. And it's not a rush to war, but it's, what is it? Is it a sort of a a need to heal and, and let poetry say things that prose can't? Yeah, I mean, I think people were seeking to understand such a huge loss. I mean, such a huge act of violence and such a huge loss. And New Yorkers were in mourning. You know, it was really trying to make sense of their own feelings and just kind of figure out what this meant. And because we had sustained such a extreme act of violence, it wasn't necessarily that we wanted to go now make somebody else sustain an extreme act of violence. Right. It didn't seem like the appropriate thing to do to many, though, of course, strategically, of course, it's a whole um, other discussion and politically. But just emotionally, it was like, that really hurt. And I don't know that I want to go have somebody else have to feel that, too. You sorted through all these poems and you picked out 45 poems written by New Yorkers in the aftermath of 9-11. Can you read us just a bit of a poem that you think strikes you this way? Well, let's see. There's a beautiful poem that Tim Swearmont wrote, a very short little poem, uh, called Squad One. And I think it, it expresses our yearning that everything is okay, that there is safety, that we're, that we're peaceful. Uh, this is Tim Swearmont's poem, Squad One. The boy parks his red fire engine, removes his red fireman's hat, and rests against the bedpost. It was a rough, dangerous day on the job, but everyone was saved from the inferno. No one died, and all the firemen came out, small birds on each of their massive shoulders. And I think that poem expresses the longing. Maybe it's a childish longing. He has a child, of course, experiencing this, but the longing for safety. Now, 10 years later, the Ground Zero site is, has actually become a major tourist attraction and visitors from it all sure over the has. United States. I think it's one of the most visited spots in New York City now, isn't it? I would be surprised if it wasn't the most visited spot. How do New Yorkers feel about that? Is it a shrine? Is it a tourist attraction? What's the feeling about the tourist site of Ground Zero? Well, we're not in love with it. <laughs> um, I mean, I think we've all had the experience of being stopped short by somebody asking us how to get there. Hmm. Um, you know, it's still a, an open wound in a lot of ways. Ten years later, when you did the your book, Poetry After 9-11, you wrote a different introduction to the book. When you look back on the perspective of ten years, how has time given you a different view on this poetry and, and this event? Well, it's interesting because we... When we when we set off to do the task of writing a new introduction for the 10th anniversary, you know, we're looking at the book anew, and we were, like, very proud and very pleased with what we had accomplished. It's it's an extremely varied collection from poets from all different stages in their careers and all different ethnicities and uh, men and women, and it's a huge cross-section, and we're very proud of what we did. And it's a very happy memory uh, to come out of something so ugly to bring something so beautiful out of it. And we also felt that it was still accurate. Uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago that poetry was a regular feature in American newspapers. It was considered uh, another aspect of reportage, that there was another mm -hmm. level of the story to tell and that it should be told in this form. That, that was the best way to tell it. And so we always kind of looked at this book as a, as a book of reportage in a way. For example, the, the assignment we, we gave to people that we asked to contribute to the book and people who inquired about, you know, what was, what was necessary, we said, well, we don't, we don't necessarily want a poem about witnessing the horror. We just want something you've written since then. And whether it's about that or not doesn't matter because we feel that in a way it is about that no matter what. Because I was struck with how a lot of the poems didn't have a, a direct relationship to 9-11. That's right. It was about life. I mean, uh, we took the title of the book as kind of a nod to Adorno, who said, you know, there will be no poetry after mm -hmm. the Holocaust. And hmm. we wanted to say, well, yeah, there will be. We're going to make it. And uh, New Yorkers are resilient, and they are processing this in a healthy way, or we need to process it in a healthy way. This is stuff that was all written 
month or two after the attacks at the most. I got it. And let's, let's look at this work that people have done since then and try to figure out how it's uh, influencing life now. I love this notion that memory can go into freeze frame. <laughs> Poets were eyewitnesses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, a mother of a girl, now ashes, yearns to lie down. Yeah. I'm the daughter of a wine never allowed to age. Reading through poetry after 9-11, it's like you get the benefit of people who were close to this and have given this a lot of thought. Yes, and I guess, you know, you asked earlier about um, did we make any changes to the book or what did we feel looking back 10 years later at the book? We felt that all that still held, that there was still a real vibrancy about the emotion of the book and that it wasn't really an act of preservation. It was, we felt this book still made a statement about the spirit of the people living in New York Mm-hmm. and that it would be a good idea to remind people that, that this still held, um, that we responded to our better angels at the time, and uh, maybe we still should. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Dennis Lloyd Johnson and Valerie Mariens, who have edited a book, a beautiful book, called Poetry After 9-11 and its 10th anniversary edition. Dennis, can you read us another poem, please? Okay. This is a poem called uh, Grudges by Stephen Dunn, who in 2001 was the Pulitzer Prize winner for poetry. Grudges. Easy for almost anything to occur. Even if we've scraped the sky, we can be rubble. For years, these men felt one way, acted another. Ground zero, is it possible to get lower? Now we had a new definition of the personal. New, almost anything could occur. It just takes a little training to blur a motive, lie low while planning the terrible, get good at acting one way, feeling another. Yet who among us doesn't harbor a grudge or secret? So much isn't erasable. It follows that almost anything can occur. Like men ascending into the democracy of air, without intending to land, the useful veil of having said one thing, meaning another. Before you know it, something's over. Suddenly, someone's missing at the table. It's easy, I know it, for anything to occur when men feel one way and act another. Dennis and Valerie, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Rick. A link to Dennis and Valerie's publishing company, Melville House Books, and a reading of another of the poems from the Poetry After 9-11 collection are in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel writer Paul Theroux joins us next with his seasoned perspective on getting out into the world, especially to places that are nothing at all like home. He's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Paul Theroux has produced some of the funniest, smartest, and most brutally honest travel books ever written by an American. Back in 1975, his classic Great Railway Bazaar inspired a world of travelers by taking us on a train across Asia. A Peace Corps volunteer in Malawi back in the 1960s, now nearly 50 years later, Theroux returns with lots of travel stories and inspiration. 
A few years back, he wrote a book called Dark Star Safari, taking us as only through Ken on a trip the length of Africa from Egypt to South Africa. And his latest book, The Tao of Travel, celebrates 50 years of travel. It's a collection of the best writing from the books that shaped Paul as a reader and as a traveler, and it's interspersed with a selection of his own best writing. Paul Thru, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Rick. Congratulations on this book. I mean, uh, in a way, you might glance at it and say, oh, it's just a, another um, anthology, you know, but I just think it's very thoughtfully done, and you've got such a wealth um, I, to draw from. You can see I introduce things and talk about it. It's not just a, a selection. I tried to say why the things belonged there, yeah. and then and I left a lot out. I mean, I, I left bits out. About, I, I had a section called Great Women Travelers. I had one called Great Travelers Who Couldn't Drive a Car. <laughs> things like that. <laughs> I left them <laughs> well, There's lots of them. There's lots of them. Can't oh, yeah. And, and you've made a life out of knowing what's the back story of all this great travel writing and so on. So that's fun to share that. Yeah. And especially the, yeah, the reading. Right in the beginning of your book, Paul, you write that books were your road. Then the road became your books. The most passionate travelers have always been passionate readers and writers. That's how this book came about. Yeah. I think I began my life imagining the world through books that were read to me as a child. And I think this is true of a lot of people, that you know nothing about the world. You know your house, your yard, your neighborhood, but you really don't know much beyond that. And then the first books aren't about that. The first books that are read to you are about exotic places or ordeals, uh, difficult journeys. And they're almost unimaginable. Robert Louis Stevenson in Edinburgh, rainy Edinburgh, Scotland, wrote a poem that began, I should like to rise and go where the golden apples grow, where beneath another sky, parrot islands anchored lie. And he's in Scotland. He was thinking, you know, this is the origin of Treasure Island, which is he was imagining a tropical island. And he ended up on a tropical island and died on the tropical island of, of Samoa. He transported himself the way many of us do. First through reading. Reading helps you see the world and it shows you how fantastic the world is, true fantasy, exoticism, or a difference from where you are. People in the West Indies imagined London. People in London imagined the palm-fringed islands of the West Indies. It starts early. I have honestly never thought about this before, but this goes way back to when I was not old enough to read almost, and I'd go over to my grandmother and grandfather's place, and they had an old 1940s vintage Treasure Island. And I remember just paging through that thing, and it did sort of take you away, didn't it, even as a little toddler? Yes, it does. And Robinson Crusoe is is another, which no one, no child reads Robinson Crusoe. Actually, not many people read Robinson Crusoe, <laughs> the whole robust book. But actually, those are books that take you away because they don't begin far away. I mean, Robinson Crusoe starts, uh, I was born in the city of York, and he talks about York, England. And Treasure Island also starts with the Benbow Inn. And that's in England. So it starts sort of near home, and it ends up, they end up, in both cases, they go away to exotic places. So it's not that you're not plunged into the middle of an exotic setting, but you become a traveler through the book, that, that the book introduces you to, to being transported from one place, from home, the Benbow Inn, where Jim Hawkins' mother is the innkeeper and so forth, where they meet Blind Pew and then the pirates, Billy Bones, and then it's Long John Silver and the treasure, and they're in a distant place. That's the wonderful thing about it. You go from here to there, and then and then back again. The, the pleasure of the books is it shows you the trajectory of travel. Now, this brings to mind a struggle that I've got as a travel writer and somebody who's an enthusiast about the value of travel. We live in a modern world. Things are changing so fast, and it's easy to think that things are different now, and you can't have that magic. And when I page through your new book, The Tao of Travel, a lot of it seems to be selections from generations past. And uh, I'm wondering, what's your take on that? Can you still find the great railway bazaar experience even in, in this generation? I think so. I mean, I've, I've written on, on this subject. People are constantly asking, is travel over? Is the travel book done? Is it finished as a thing in the age of you know jumbo jets and Google Maps and so forth? I do believe that there are lots of places to go. It's easier to go these days to places, say, the Great Railway Bazaar trip that I took in 1973 and 74. I went from uh, London to Tokyo. I went through Turkey, you know, took the Orient Express, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. And I took it for granted that I would have no problem getting from London to 
Bangladesh, let's say, to the edge of Bangladesh by train or without leaving the ground, let's say. And I thought, there's no obstacle. I, I was sitting in my house in London the day before with some tickets in my hand, and I thought, my problem will arise when I get to Burma because I can't go overland into Burma. I'll have to fly mm. into Burma. Now, think about that today. Imagine someone trying to go from London to Bangladesh by train or by overland. Mm -hmm. You can't go through Iran. I tried to get a visa there a few years ago. I failed. You can't go through Afghanistan. Pakistan is a problem. I mean, I wouldn't advise anyone uh, to go to Pakistan. So there's three countries which are contiguous, have shared borders anyway, from the edge of Turkey to the edge of India is sort of a no-go area. So you say, are there still places to go? Well, I'll say there are, because wait, wait till they open up. I mean, at some point, Iran will be possible. Afghanistan will be, the war will be over, we hope. Uh, Pakistan might be less bellicose, mm -hmm. and you'll be able to go. I've just named three places that I went 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, and you cannot go there now. This is true of a lot of countries, many countries in Africa and countries you know, elsewhere. Turkmenistan is a problem. You can also go to places that you've been to before and go to them better this time. I've been going to Rome for 30 years, and just last month I decided not to look at the Scala Santa, you know, the holy steps where all the pilgrims climb, but to actually climb them on my knees. It was a beautiful experience. It was painful. I was surrounded by pilgrims from all over the world, and it was a yes. tradition that's been going on for over a thousand years. And I yep. thought, I've missed this opportunity so many times. That's true. That's true. Um, I knew a, a man that lived in Lebanon. He lived in, in Beirut for 15 years, and he said he had never been to Baalbek. He said that <laughs> tourists used to come, and the first thing they did was go to Baalbek, and for some reason he didn't go. And he, after 15 years, he visited Baalbek. So what you just said, which is the return journey, is also a different trip. If, if you go back to, you know, wherever, back to where you were in the Peace Corps, for example, which I did a few years ago, it was a completely different place. I went in the Peace Corps in late 1963, and I was in Malawi in Central Africa. Going back now is a completely different experience from flying into the you know the mud hmm. huts and so forth. It's it was a country of three million people. It's now a country of thirteen million people. So time makes a difference, and more so now it seems because things are changing so fast. You know, I went yes. down to you probably went to Nicaragua and El Salvador back in the eighties when it was liberation theology and Sandinistas. And you go down yep. there now, and it's uh, gangs and uh, globalization and uh, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. It's a whole. It's an equal equal kind of struggle, but it's a different story. I, I totally agree. And I was just yeah. in Turkey. Uh, it's so affluent. No, it's changed, and we and you have to adjust to that, and not to look for the people on donkeys um, and the women at the at the well with the pottery jugs on their heads. You know. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 You have to adjust to <laughs> the fact that they've changed. So you could say I you've been all over the world, and you could say there's no more places, but there's plenty of places to go back to, and also there are places that are closed up, as I said about Afghanistan, yeah. for example, which was once. It was on the hippie trail. It was the great place to go. And Afghanistan, you know, unless you were very heavily armed, you know, I would say don't go there. But you'd be surprised how many people I meet actually who, uh, I've just been on a book tour and I meet people and they say, uh, you inspired me to go. I've just been here. I've been to Guatemala. I've been to India or something. And, you know, people are still doing it. Lots of people. I love when you talk about once a place has a reputation as a paradise, it goes to hell. <laughs> I arrived at that conclusion traveling around the Pacific because a lot of places like Bora Bora oh, in yeah. French Polynesia and Hawaii, for example, um, any place they call an island paradise, the island paradise, as soon as it gets this reputation, the island paradise, everyone wants to go there. People ask me, what's your favorite beach in Hawaii? And I said, I'm not going to tell you my favorite beach. I'll tell you my second favorite <laughs> beach. Okay? It's the and same then, with the Costa del Sol when they say the last undiscovered gem of the Costa del Sol. Sorry. <laughs> Everybody knows yeah. that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux about his new book, The Tao of Travel. Paul, in a nutshell, what do you mean by Tao? The path, the way, the way of traveling, the way that other people have done it, the way I've done it. Your um, philosophy about the best way to travel. Yeah, and, and really a melange of the, the way many people have done it because yeah. everyone, people do it in so many different ways. One is an ordeal, another as a love affair, another as autobiography. I mean, people travel for so many different reasons. Some aren't traveling at all to a place. They're sort of fleeing a place, <laughs> trying to get away from home. They're not really going well, to Well, and a that's place. the fun thing about your book. It's a collection of inspirational pieces of travel from many generations, and it's filled with your insights after 50 years of travel. My, my favorite single page, I think, is 
right at the end, you've got the 10 essentials. And uh, let me just go through these really quickly with you. I will say the essential, and then you'll tell me why that's, that's so important. First of all, okay. leave home. Leave home, I, I think, is, is essential because you need to be away from people that you grew up with. You need to be away from authority figures. Leaving home is essential in, in many realms of endeavor, but particularly the creative ones. I would not have become a writer if I hadn't left home. Travel isn't about being home. You're, you're hanging out with different people, and it's a whole different environment. And you're discovering what it is you really want without people pestering and saying, <laughs> yeah. to, living up to their expectations. So it's when you're away from home, you tend to arrive uh, at a conclusion. You understand what it is that you want, or you, you have the means to find out what you want. Does it annoy you when people are constantly comparing things to back home? Oh, this is bigger, this is older, this is taller, or, or is that just a normal thing? Often we don't have any other means of comparison, so no, yeah. it doesn't It doesn't bother me. And it, I was on the Yangtze in 1980, and I remember a man saying, God, this this reminds me of Pittsburgh, <laughs> or on the Yank, uh, at a confluence of two rivers. And I, I said, that's interesting. He said, just like Pittsburgh, uh, only bigger. And he said, what a place for a condo. Oh, I no, thought, what an absurd yeah. thing to say. And yet, but, I, but, but he thinking, was prescient. He's thinking, now, I'll, yeah. bet, I'll bet now if you went back there, there are a few condos right. there. So there you go. Okay, point two of Paul Thru's 10 Essentials for the Tao of Travel, go alone. Go alone is very essential, I think, because at least if you want to write about travel, if you want to be a traveler, because if you're alone, you meet other people, you have to compromise with other people, you can't retreat, and you learn a language, you find out things, you're kind of forced aloneness. Solitude or be open to friends, is it, is it both? Uh, it forces you to make friends and to, to confront the, the place that you're in. You really have no excuse. You can't run back to your friend, you can't have dinner with your friend or your traveling companion. Right. You have to do something with other people. You're more open to meeting people when you don't have the crutch of a partner from home. It becomes a necessity. It yes. becomes an uh, absolute necessity. Point three, travel light. That's just, a, um, I think, an obvious thing, which is the more lightly you travel, small bag. Um, this is why the great thing about traveling in warm places. Yeah. When you're traveling in the tropics, in particular equatorial places or Europe in the summer or wherever, you're not encumbered. I mean, luggage in Latin is impedimenta. Lug, well, you know, yeah. and, and all lug it, yeah, lug it. Lug but I mean, it. impedimenta is, is an impediment. You don't want to be burdened. I once made a side trip into Morocco from Spain, and I left 80% of my gear in Spain, and it was beautiful. Did another side yeah. trip from a hotel in, in uh, Bali, went four or five days around the island, leaving 80% of my luggage at the hotel that I was returning to, and it was a beautiful thing. So if you can get down to that tropical basic minimum, you have an advantage, don't you? Yes, it's harder in a cold climate. If you're in right. a cold climate, you have, and it's harder also if you're in a place and you need to be respectable, you're right. giving a talk or you're meeting the ambassador or, right. I don't know, meeting someone in a fancy restaurant, that, that creates problems. And I like so, a climate where you can just wash your shirt and put it on immediately. Oh, well, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Point four of Paul Thru's 10 Essentials for the Tao of Travel, bring a map. I think a map is more useful than a travel book, that you could bring both. I use travel books every so often, or I look at them and consult them. But a map, especially a detailed map, has a tremendous amount of information on it. And you look at it closely, you see elevations, you see where there's uh, settlements, you see side roads, you see detours, you see hmm. um, rapid exits, and you can avoid trouble too by looking at a map. I'd put a sub point on that, learn the key. Oh, that's true. Yeah, learn the key. <laughs> I always say, spend half a traffic jam just learning the key. There's so much in there that most travelers don't realize because they never took time to learn the key. That's very true. I get the best maps I can of a, of a place and take them along. Uh, point five, go by land. Going overland is really important because flying is not really travel. Flying is unavoidable, but I would say go by land insofar as possible so that you want to see the maximum. And then make impromptu stops along the way. Yes, yes. And you also see that how the landscape changes. Rather than going sort of in this rocket ship from a cold place to a hot place, right. it's wonderful to see by degrees ah. how places change. I think you wrote about that, taking a train, going to another climate, leaving a snowy environment, getting on a train and knowing you're going to a different climate. Yes, and you see it, the, the snow melting as you, as you move <laughs> south. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful a great thing. thing. But traveling by land, is, it's also how we, as the first bipedaled, creatures on earth. We, we began life as walkers. Walking is the ancient form of locomotion, and it reminds us of who we are. I think some of the most inspirational excerpts of writing that you've included in your book, The Tao of Travel, are from people who walked or 
took a mule or something like that. Yes, it's true uh, that, that the great travelers, and, and even mo- more recently, you know, travelers that we read, uh, Bruce Chatwin is one, is, were walkers, great walkers. Now, related to Go By Land is your essential number six, walk across a national frontier. Walk across a national frontier sounds like a, an odd prescription, but when you're in a place, let's say you're going from um, Ethiopia to Kenya, I don't recommend that everyone should walk across that frontier. But if you do, you find that Ethiopia is not Kenya. And yet a a national frontier is often a riverbed or it's a mountain range or it's um, there's some natural feature. It could be a cliff. Tell me a couple of uh, particularly evocative border crossings. I'm thinking Iran to Afghanistan. I I remember distinctly going from Iran to Afghanistan. You you take the train to Meshed, the holy city in the northeast, and then you get a bus. And the bus uh, stops in the no man's land. You have to walk. And this is another reason why traveling light is good. So you have your bag and you walk from Iran to Afghanistan. In Iran, it's very, very dramatic one into the other. And at the other end in the far western part of Afghanistan is the city of Herat. Now you hear about it as a place where there are suicide bombers and there's uh, mayhem. But actually, it's an ancient town visited by Alexander the Great. It has a beautiful mosque. It has traditional houses and crafts and so forth. And it's an amazing place. Quite different from, you know, a day's walk across the border to Iran. And you realize you're in two, they're two distinct places, but you go, it, it's not as rapid as that because there's always this, this no man's land in the middle. Some people trying to get out, some people trying to get in. And the edge of a country is very characteristic of the country, whereas the international airport in the country doesn't represent a country at all. That's just a place where Hillary Clinton is at any particular time, or um, you know, a fundraiser, or a tourist, or a person going on a safari. That's where they, you know, they feel comfortable. But the edge of the country is is very, very helpful. And fewer and fewer people take a bus to the border, walk across the border, and catch the first thing rolling beyond. You know, it's a great way. It's to not cross easy the to do, but it's very, very um, enlightening. It takes time. It does. I, I think the only thing not easy about it is it takes more time than a lot of people are willing to give it. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Tao of Travel with Paul Theroux. He's got a new book out celebrating 50 years of travel. We've got more of The Essentials coming up and more of the Tao of Travel with Paul Theroux. Bonjour. Je suis Hélène Chiolino. J'habite Paris et je voyage avec Rick Steves. Hello. I'm Elaine Chiolino. I live in Paris and I travel with Rick Steves. Bonjour, je suis Hélène Chiolino. J'habite Paris et je voyage avec Rick Steves. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is travel writer Paul Theroux. His website is paultheroux.com. That's spelled T-H-E-R-O-U-X. His latest book is called The Tao of Travel. Paul's been sharing the first six of his list of ten essentials for the proper way to experience meaningful travel. Point number seven on his list is keep a journal. Yes, I think, and by the way, uh, proper only in the sense of if some revelation is is desired. There is such a thing as, as a vacation, a holiday, where you have a really, <laughs> really nice time. Travel isn't always about having a nice time. Keeping a journal is helpful, though, because it keeps you sane. And because in travel there are so many impressions, every hour there's a new impression, and every day new impressions. And you often forget what's happened to you, or you think, um, what did happen? Where am I? Where have I been? And I think a journal is a way of sorting that out. There's two things that come to mind when you say that to me, Paul. You've got your immediate catch these little things as they flutter by, and then your journal that you collect them all into. Do you actually have your journal where you write these things down, or do you have a small book, which is your, your you know rough bag that you hold these ideas in? I have two. It's interesting you should say that. I, I usually have a small notebook that I carry around all day writing things down. It's very unobtrusive. It fits in my pocket. 
and I, I take it out you know, every 10 minutes and make a note. And then at the end of the day or early the next morning, I transcribe from my little notebook into what's essentially a diary, a daily diary, but but more than. I mean, I might write four or five fairly large pages. I, let's say say 1,000 to 1,500 words of what's happened. So it's an account. It's a narrative of the trip that I've made from this little notebook. But I think the critical thing is that little notebook you have in your pocket, that easy-to-pack-away, tiny little notebook where you collect these little things as they wash ashore on your trip. Yes, it is, and you need one that serves you well. That little notebook is really the useful one because that's the one when someone says something funny or mm -hmm. they say, oh, there's a word in my language for that, you say, how do you spell it? And you you have to have something, you know, accessible. Yeah, and it can be inane. I mean, I just wrote down, you know, a, a Charlie horse. That's when people get a knot in their calf, right, with a muscle. Yes. It's called a donkey bite in Turkey. Thought, <laughs> well, that's very cool. Now, will I ever use it? Probably not. But it's nice to write it down. And uh, and then yes. it, it, it leads to something. And it's kind of, to me, like beachcombing after a storm as you're walking along the beach. And then you get back and you got to build something. And sometimes you don't know what all these parts are going to do. But more often than not, you can build something pretty cool. As my father used to say, that'll come in handy someday. <laughs> Actually, from a practical point of view, do you use a laptop back at the hotel or do you just write it into a journal? No, I don't bring a laptop. I don't bring any electronics apart from uh, we're going to come to a cell phone in a minute. Uh, my wife forced me to take one. But traveling with a computer is not a good idea. Uh, first, you look suspicious. It's like a camera is a problem, too, right. for me, or has been in the past. So I don't travel with a camera, though I can see there that they might be useful. Okay, so keep a journal, old-fashioned journal. Yep. That's a, It's the most precious souvenir. When I look back on 30 years of travel, if, if my house is burning down, I'd grab those journals, man. All right, number eight, read a novel that has no relation to the place you're in. That's sort of counterintuitive. What's with that? I would say that there's a lot of loneliness in travel. and So we, we started by saying, leave home, go alone. So let's say you're alone and you're in, let's say you're in Juneau. Let's say you're in Anchorage. I would say bring... Madame Bovary with you. <laughs> because when you're there, you don't want to be f completely flooded by Alaskan impressions. You might want a little relief from it. And the relief might be to be in a little bourgeois household where the lady of the house is committing adultery. <laughs> and you think, and every night you go back to your room, you're alone. We've agreed that you're probably alone. And it becomes a refuge and also a way of distancing yourself from the world. It's, it's, it's a relief, actually, to be able to go back and to re-enter the lives of people, I mean, uh, and particularly in a novel. Mm. And I've found that um, nothing is more memorable than the novel that you read in the very, very far away place. I remember uh, novels that I read in Borneo. I remember novels that I read in Africa that had nothing to do with those places. And because I was in those places, they were very, very vivid to me, more vivid mm -hmm. than if I had read, say, Madame Bovary in France. In that respect, I was once in, I was really suffering in Indonesia, in a very poor place in Indonesia, reading a, a John Updike novel about adultery in Massachusetts. And I thought, if <laughs> I hated the book, actually, as a result. I mean, I hate it because I thought, what frivolous people. But, yeah. you know, it's memorable. It's a good advice for me because I'm such a workaholic when I'm on the road that I'm, if I'm going to read something, it's going to try to bolster my understanding of that culture. But really, I think it makes a lot of sense to give yourself a break and read something that just takes you away from it for a little while. Nothing is more of a consolation than re-entering that world of fiction, because the, the world of fiction, is a, it's a complete world, and the people are, are understandable. I guess I enjoy going to a movie that has nothing to do with where I am, in a theater where I am. Uh, if you can find the movie, there aren't a lot of movies showing in, say, Herat, well, Afghanistan. Well, that's a good point. I'm talking with Paul Theroux. We're talking about the Tao of travel. Paul's 10 Essentials. Uh, number nine, if you must bring a cell phone, avoid using it. Uh, minimize all your electronic gear. I've said, I said earlier, I, I don't think a computer is a good thing because it can get lost, it can get stolen, it, you can drop it, it can break. Um, you look suspicious. If you're going through customs and immigration, you, know, you can get banged around. Uh, mainly get broken, lost, or stolen. And then everything's gone. If you have a notebook, it's much better, I think. Uh, cell phones these days um, is seen to be an essential item. And so you could bring it. I mean, I agree that for safety reasons, for staying in touch with home, it's probably a good idea to have one. But I also think it's a good idea to avoid using it often and to immerse yourself in a place to the extent that you're not using it as a lifeline. And that when you get lonely, you're not calling mom and dad. I really think that mom and dad have to understand that you're far away and that you're on your own and that you don't need this umbilical cord in the form of a cell phone. 
that's a good thing to be explicit about with your loved ones. It's just, I'm going away to go away. I won't be in touch every day, and it has no bearing on how much I love you. I need to be away. And it's also the point is that part of the reason you're going away is you're going away from them. I mean, you're, <laughs> if you're, you're no leaving offense, home. but I'm going away from you. No but, offense. Yeah, that's but these right. days, I mean. Don't take this the wrong way, but I'm leaving, <laughs> I'm leaving you. I, if I wanted to talk to you, I'd stay home. In my work as a tour guide, I've noticed in the last decade, people have to get online. As soon as they get to the hotel, it's, how do I get online? And it's a, it's a different approach to travel now, and people are never really away. I understand why people want to get online. I mean, I think it's easy to understand. It's 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 a consolation. Sometimes people are doing business. It's fun also being online. You can mm -hmm. check the news. You can stay up with things. But uh, when I started travel in the early 60s, as a Peace Corps volunteer and then later traveling in Africa, I didn't have a phone. There was no internet. And I'm, I seem to be talking about the good old days. They weren't that good, really. But but being out of touch was a very, very helpful thing to me. And being unconnected and out of touch actually helped me understand Africa better and helped me understand myself better. So it's just a question of resisting it rather right. than abandoning it. Well, like I think you wrote that you it was, what, six years before you made an international phone call while you were working as, in the Peace Corps? Yeah, that's stuff. true. I, did, I, 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 was, I was in Africa for six years without a phone. Yeah. I was in Singapore for three years and didn't have a phone. So nine years, <laughs> uh, nine wow. years without a, a phone. Well, um, it wasn't a bad thing. I, I wrote a lot of letters. Yeah, wrote letters. I wrote letters. Point 10 on Paul Theroux's essentials for the path of proper travel, in his estimate, make a friend. All of these things, if, if you leave home, you go alone, you travel light, you go by land, you walk across the national frontier, walk generally, I think you're likely to make a friend. And I think that the friends that you make in travel, I'm thinking of, you know, the friend could be anyone. It could be someone else traveling or it could be someone in the place. Someone that you, you get to know. I mean, if a friend is someone for whom there's a, a mutual intimacy which is not romantic, but it's it's someone that you begin to understand aspects of their life and you sort of introduce them to aspects of yours. And that's the thing. I mean, when the trip is over, that person is, is likely to be the high point of your trip. And it's someone that you might stay in touch with one way or another. And you've realized that, that people on earth live parallel lives. Is there some value of talking to somebody who you may not stay in touch with? You encounter some interesting guy in the Sure, yeah. Just, just, I think just having a conversation with someone is always helpful. It, I, I've said that in, in travel, I'm interested in human architecture, you know, rather than museums and, and churches. And the shape of people's lives, the fate that they have, is something that we need to understand and actually enriches us much more if we see that we're very lucky because we travel, the people that we meet, generally speaking, are not traveling at all. They're there, they're right. there in the place, and they're there when you leave. And you find that the people in the world are not, they're not like us materially at all. But they have, there's so much that one can learn from, from that sort of experience. If you make a friend, you learn much more. You know, I was just in Turkey, and a, a man I was traveling with had a Turkish flag on his lapel, and he said it was his little trick so people would talk to him. And it turned out to be a great idea. All Everybody was asking, oh, you got a Turkish flag, and that just broke the ice and, and got people to know he was approachable and, and he was friendly and interested in talking. Do you have any little quirky tricks like that that help you connect with people? I don't. That's a good one. Because I always think of Americans wearing an American flag, and you know, I, I wouldn't want to uh, do that on the road, but I'd wear a Turkish no, flag. No, absolutely. This this man with a flag of the country that you're in is quite a good one. Um, in Turkey, <laughs> I, I don't have a large Turkish vocabulary, but in Turkey, I, I know how to say Afyet Olsun. Afyet Olsun means bon appetit. Oh, it means, you know, good eating. Let's right. Let's eat. And so that stood in very good stead in, in Turkey. Key phrases, key phrases. I think just, you know, if you look interested, if you look alert, if you look curious, obviously you're going to stand out. In England, I found people love to be asked directions. Asked, mm -hmm. And English <laughs> people tend not to talk to you, except you, you say, how do you get to the post office? Or where's the nearest whatever restaurant or something like that? And then they give very explicit directions. And in the course of asking directions, you often end up in a conversation because they, they say they hear your accent. They say yeah. where you're from. And as I say, uh, the English love giving directions. So ask directions <laughs> next time you're in. Or pet someone's dog. That's always a great way. But there's lots of ways to just break the ice and connect with people in your travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Paul Theroux. Paul's new book is The Tao of Travel. You know, Paul, when I was telling my friends I'm going to be interviewing and reviewing this book and everything, one comment I get so much is, oh, I love Paul Theroux, but he's, he's always in such a bad mood. He's cranky, yeah. famously cranky. What's, what's the deal? 
You can see just talking to you, Rick, that I have a hobbit-like disposition. I have little furry feet. <laughs> you can't be a cranky traveler. If you're a traveler, you need to be a compromiser. You need to understand people. You can't be in a bad mood. If you're in a bad mood, you will have such a terrible time. I think that this have you heard crankiness that? is just shorthand for, I think, because I write ironically about places. And mm -hmm. I suppose uh, when I write about places, I write about them in, you know, as, as breezy a way as I can and as truthfully as I can. And people take that to be, um, I don't know, cranky. But I, I, I'm unsparing <laughs> in general when I'm talking about a place. So I think... Uh, You're sharing an insight in a candid and frank way. Maybe that's just... I think so. And I think also that, you know, that anyone who reads my books will see that I am not a cranky traveler. That I'm, <laughs> I, I'm actually... Uh, I have a sense of humor and that I, I've made friends and that you can't do it if you're cantankerous. Well, if you're cranky on the road, you're not going to be very happy on the road because, as you said... You, you will be miserable. I always cut people slack when I'm traveling. If, if it seems something seems wrong, I just figure, well, I don't know the whole story about them and try to cut them a little slack, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think that a traveler is, by nature, an optimist, believing that something interesting or good will happen next day. If it's not happening today, it's going to happen tomorrow. Otherwise, you stay home. It's the pessimists, <laughs> it's the cranks who stay home. It's the optimists, it's the people who think that, that something good has happened, who, who take trips and go away. Now, you've been at this for 50 years. You know, you've, you've gone from a young backpacker to a senior traveler now, after 50 years of doing this. Are you more invisible now as an older traveler when you're in a market in, in Africa or something like that than a younger traveler? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing, an advantage, disadvantage? I definitely think that older people are, are less visible than the young, and particularly an old older <laughs> traveler like myself wearing old clothes and unobtrusive is, I'm invisible to women. <laughs> I used to be visible to women. But, but I think that's true. It's just the older, the, the senior person traveling. In many countries, not only are you older, but I mean, you may be the oldest person on the bus. You know, that, yeah. that in a place in Zimbabwe where the average life expectancy is 38 years, I mean, a man in his late 60s is possibly the oldest person there, though you may not look it. I think it's a great advantage to be an older traveler and to be a less visible traveler. It's not good to be conspicuous. For that reason, I don't wear shorts. Wearing shorts in many countries, most countries, I think, marks you out as a visitor, as someone from another planet. And so you wear long pants and you're older and uh, you don't have a funny hat and no one looks at you and you become like a ghost, someone who is alive, eavesdropping on the whole place. And when you make a friend, it's, it's a real friend. Now, that's a nice thought. You're eavesdropping and you make a friend, it's a real friend. Uh, sort of related to being older is we've got more money when we're older, when we travel generally. I remember once I had to beg for food high in the mountains in Kosovo, and in retrospect, it was a great experience because I didn't have any money. I think one of my favorite excerpts in your book, The Tao of Travel, was when you uh, wrote about this incredible woman, Dervla Murphy, in full tilt, 1965. Yes. She said, it seemed quite natural before a meal to scrape the dried mud off the bread, pick the hairs out of the cheese, and remove the bugs from the sugar. I stopped registering the presence of fleas and hadn't taken off my clothes or slept in a bed for 10 days. She was having a good travel experience. Uh, Dervla Murphy, who, and she allowed me to use her rules of, of travel in one section, Murphy's Rules of Travel. She's 80 years old. She's Irish. She started traveling in the early 60s, uh, rode a bike to India, full tilt, rode a bike from Ireland to India. <laughs> and she's ridden bikes all over South America and in Ethiopia. She was on a mule. She's been to uh, Nepal and more recently in the Middle East in um, Palestine, actually, in, well, among Palestinians, let's say. So she's, she's the example. She's the poster child for travel. She's always traveled in the most humble way. And she says in, in one of her rules is, if you have a child, say five years old, take your child with you. Because if you take a child to an equatorial country in particular, people will think kindly. They'll treat you more kindly than if you're alone because they can relate to people with children, a woman with a child. She traveled with her, her young daughter all over the world, usually on a bike. She's always traveled. So scraping the, the, the mud off the bread and eating it, is that's her modus operandi. <laughs> Her book is Full Tilt, and is it still available in print? Oh, yeah, that's available. Full yeah. Tilt is one. She went across Ethiopia on a mule. That's in print. That was one of the beauties of, of reading your book, The Tao of Travel, is being exposed to people like this who I wouldn't otherwise appreciate. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I've had so much fun talking with Paul Theroux about his latest book, celebrating, really, 50 years of travel writing and exploring the world. 
Paul, when people think of uh, Paul Theroux, they think of the Great Railway Bazaar. And I remember just reading in this latest book that for you, you associate your happiest days sitting on a train. And for many, it's just the opposite. Finish this off by letting us sit with you on a train ride somewhere where we can really feel the magic of this kind of travel. I can think of many train rides. The ideal train ride is the train is traveling along the coast. The waves are breaking. The surf is sort of speckling the windows of the train. The most the most memorable train ride, I didn't know it at the time, was in Costa Rica. I was traveling from San Jose to Limon through the jungle. I had a copy of the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym by Edgar Allan Poe on my lap and a notebook. And I looked out the window and I saw the waves breaking, the palm trees. The train was kind of rattling. I could hear the ocean. It's the Caribbean breaking on the coast. And I said to a guy, uh, what's the name of this place? And he said, this is the Mosquito Coast. And I thought of the story of a castaway, a family of castaways that might turn up there. And as the train went by and I saw the beach and I saw the trees, I saw the water, I imagined what the Mosquito Coast meant to me and how I might turn that into something. The best thing in travel is that you bring back something. I brought back the idea for a novel. And that train ride actually changed my life. Wow. Paul Theroux, thank you so much and continued happy travels. Thanks, Rick. Lovely to talk to you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our colleagues at WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help today. You can find many interviews from past editions of the show grouped by country. They're available as podcasts and as apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Plus, Rick offers guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular sites. It's all part of the Rick Steves Audio Europe Package. You'll find links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. As my father used to say, that'll come in handy someday. (laughs) Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, Visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.